0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse.
1: We did yield our members as slaves of uncleanness and iniquity unto iniquity. It is only in Christ that we are enabled to comprehend that the slavery to pride Ambition, arrogance, selfishness, envy, covetousness, and all the other sins that hatch out of white eggs Is no less a slavery than that of drunkenness, thievery, lust, treason, murder, and all the other sins that hatch out of dark eggs There is no difference in the sight of God There is no first class sin and second class sin
0: The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Slaves of Righteousness. A gypsy named Ivan was a violent drunkard who beat his family. He was also a slave to sin and unrighteousness until he was transformed by the gospel. He became a servant of Christ, a pastor, and an evangelist to gypsies in Hungary. Jesus purchases slaves of sin and wickedness with his own blood, and he changes them into slaves of righteousness. Are you a servant of sin or a servant of the Lord? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6, we're looking at verses 18 through 22. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Slaves of Righteousness.
1: Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We worship thee and acknowledge thee to be our Lord. We thank thee that thou hast loved us and redeemed us to thyself by the blood of thy Son, and that thou hast revealed thyself to us in this book, the Holy Word. Bless it in this hour as we fling it forth in faith, believing that it has been planned by thee to bring forth thine eternal purposes. Speak to each listening heart. And may there be yieldedness to that which we hear. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we come close to the end of the sixth chapter of Romans, and our text is a paragraph of verses there. Having been set free from sin, you have become the slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in familiar human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For as you yielded your members as slaves of uncleanness and iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members as slaves of righteousness unto holy living. For when you were the slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What benefit did you get from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become the slaves of God you have your reward in holiness, and the end, eternal life. And the whole matter is now summed up in this wonderful contrast between the life of the unbeliever and the life of the believer. This contrast is set forth not as one between true Christians and non-Christians who are living side by side, though this contrast could most certainly have been made, but rather it's a contrast which these people who had been pagans could see in their own lives before and after they had been made alive in Christ. It should be realized immediately that this contrast cannot be understood as well by most of those who hear these words today as it would if presented to those who have come into Christianity on the mission field after having lived in a heathen world for a good portion of life. I know that my own experience parallels that of millions of other Americans And I set it forth briefly to illustrate this point. Though I was born to parents who had made a mixed marriage, I was brought up within the shadow of the church and in an atmosphere of faith and godliness. Like multitudes of other children, I sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. And I never knew what it was to sit at table without hearing thanksgiving to God for his provision. I never knew what it was to go to sleep without being committed to him for loving care. I early learned to recite verses of scripture, and I would have said throughout my youth that I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. When I was seven or eight, I can remember being moved to tears at the close of a gospel sermon and walking down front to take the evangelist by the hand. And shortly thereafter, I must have come before the elders of the church, though I do not remember the incident at all and had my name placed on the role of church members. And it was when I was 15 years of age that I can remember vividly the awareness of a sense of sin, the conviction of its presence within me. And I remember also how a faithful man pointed me to the verses in the scripture which declare that God had dealt with my sin forever and that I could know that I have eternal life. It was there in a verse which showed that the Lord had laid upon Christ all of my iniquity that I became aware of the fact that the word of God said that my sins had been dealt with, and I thanked God for the fact and entered into assurance. For several years thereafter, as I grew rapidly in faith and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would frequently say in a testimony or in my early attempts to preach that this 15-year-old experience was the time of my conversion. I know now, of course, that I was wrong. All that happened to me when I was 15 was that I became aware of the possession of the eternal life which had been given to me by God long before then, perhaps even from my earliest childhood. And I do not care how far back you press the time of that divine work. Paul and others in the scripture spoke of having been separated from the mother's womb. And this is the way that God frequently works. Now It goes without saying, therefore, that certain experiences which are common to those brought up in the darkness of Africa or India or China were totally unknown to me. There are some, of course, who have been brought up in paganism here in America, but the presence of a virile, zealous Christianity creates an atmosphere which colors the thinking even of the non-Christian in this country. We live in a nation where the most vigorous anti-Christians mouth the certain Christian idealism and proclaim a variety of ethics which takes its gray color from an attempt to mix the whiteness of Christ with the blackness of its own unbelief. It was not so in ancient Rome as it is not so today in the heart of the pagan world. For example, we in this country live, almost all of us, with less fear of death than that which exists in the midst of the pagan world. Now, first, our text sets forth that an individual, before he is regenerated, is a slave of sin. We've all of us seen the fruits of this slavery, and we're able to see it around us today. We're all of us aware also of the presence of the Adamic nature which desires nothing but that slavery to sin. It must not be thought that freedom from the lowest forms of that slavery constitutes real freedom. When I was in my late teens, I had my first experience of observation of the corruption of sin through some work which I did in a rescue mission in Los Angeles. I can remember a meeting one night in which there was testimony from men who had been bums, and I think that some of them still were. A first man testified and told how he had been in prison three times and how he had lived a life of sin. The next man had been in prison four times and he was slightly worse as a sinner. The next man raised it to six imprisonments, and added dope to the alcohol that the first two had talked about. And I was a little uneasy as these men spoke. It seemed to me somehow that uh, some of these men were exhibitionists, though I didn't know the meaning of that word at the time. I thought that uh, perhaps if the man who had testified first had only waited till the last, he might have remembered a few more convictions, and have found a, a deeper black for his portrait. And finally, I could contain myself no longer. And I I rose to say that I had a greater testimony than any man who had spoken. And there was an intense silence as these men, eroded with cancerous sin, turned to look at the beardless youth who was seemingly raising their auction to take the game. And then I cried out that the reason why I had a testimony that was greater than any that had been given was that I was able to say... Not that Jesus Christ had saved me after all of these horrors, but that he had kept me from them. I can remember a very dirty old man bursting into tears. Perhaps looking upon me conjured up in his mind the memory of his youth and what he might have been. But although I had such a testimony and still have it, I am able to look down through the electronic microscope of the word of God and see the corruption of the nature which is mine by inheritance and to acknowledge that all of the seeds which brought forth such corruption in these men were and are within my being as they are within you. It is in the light of this truth that the true Christian will be very humble and will desire to grow in compassion toward those who are out of the way. And it is even possible that we who have known the most of the grace of God are thereby enabled to acknowledge with deepest trembling The reality of the sin which was the master in title and in principle in our lives as it is in the lives of all the unregenerate. We did yield our members as slaves of uncleanness and iniquity unto iniquity. It is only in Christ that we are enabled to comprehend that the slavery to pride, ambition, arrogance, selfishness, envy, covetousness, and all the other sins that hatch out of white eggs is no less a slavery than that of drunkenness, thievery, lust, treason, murder, and all the other sins that hatch out of dark eggs. There is no difference in the sight of God. There is no first-class sin and second-class sin. Then in the next place, our text now sets forth a collateral truth which is of great importance. The fact that the unsaved were the bond slaves of sin, whether they were performing clean or dirty work, freed them In regard to righteousness now what does this mean that when you were slaves of sin you were free as regards to righteousness it's the simple setting forth of the divine fact not often admitted or proclaimed by Christian preachers that the quantity or quality of sinful actions in an unsaved man does not change his status as an unsaved man a murderer who has committed only one murder is no nearer to God than a murderer who has committed ten murders. Now, that proposition may be accepted by many, but our text is claiming that an unsaved person who has committed no murders is no nearer to God than the unsaved person who has committed the murders in no matter what number. The degree of sinful life, the number of sinful acts in the life of a man who has not been born again, these do not affect his status in any way. He is the bond slave of sin, and no man should expect righteousness of him, as certainly God does not expect righteousness from the unregenerate man. Our text says he is free from righteousness. He is a bond slave of sin. Now, there's a remarkable testimony to this truth of the righteousness that is demanded of the believer and is not demanded of the unbeliever that is frequently in the headlines of our newspapers. Just this week, I received a clipping from a San Francisco newspaper which proclaimed in two lines of type an inch and a half high, stretching the entire width of the page, Pastor Admits Swindling Aged Couple of $23,000. It was a sordid story, but as I read it, I realized that here was a testimony from the world of the general holiness of pastors. The fact that one had fallen into grievous sin caused the world to scream the news. Never in the history of newspapers has there been a headline which announced that a bartender has swindled someone. Or if jockeys, gamblers, soldiers, sailors, oilmen, merchants, railroad workers, or any other category of citizens are overtaken in crime, their action will be noticed, if at all, only by the importance of the victim or the size of the theft. It's not really news that the thief was a motorman, a chauffeur, a gardener, or a clerk. It once was news when a thief was a policeman, for the nature of the office of a policeman was to be the guardian of the law. And the transgression from that position should still cause the nation a profound shock. The fact that grafting policemen are accepted as facts by a cynical population shows how far we have fallen in civic unrighteousness. But the world expects pastors to be honest, to be moral, and it is headline-making news when they are not. It is for this reason the newspaper will drag into the past of an arrested person and headline the fact that they were once connected with a Sunday school or with a choir. But for those who make no pretense of believing in Christ, there is freedom from such criticism. As our text says, they are free in regard to righteousness. The world simply does not expect a non-Christian to produce righteousness. And the world is never surprised when the non-Christian goes into deep sin. Then in the third place, our text sets forth the fact that the committing of sin brings no benefit, no return. Our text says that crime does not pay. Now the passerby, noting a gambler who is surrounded by bodyguards, dressed in a suit that cost $200, wearing diamonds worth several thousand, and carrying a large wad of money of high denominations, stepping into a chauffeur-driven Cadillac beside a blonde and a mink coat, may think that crime pays. Well, they may revise their opinion when they hear that he's been cut down by a submachine gun in the hands of a rival gangster. But even if he lives to a ripe old age and is buried in a copper casket, he has gone into a Christless eternity and knows the truth that is in our text, what benefit did you get? And the truth is the same for those who have lived in clean sins, as well as for those who have lived in dirty sins. What sort of a harvest did you reap from those things that today you blush to remember? In the long run, those things mean only one thing, death. The history of the human race teaches us that nothing gained through sin is worth the price paid for it. And then the fourth lesson that our passage teaches is that passing out of death and into life may be compared to a change of employers, together with all that is involved in such a change. This illustration that forms our text was written down in Bible times when the employer was a slave owner and the employee was a slave. A few weeks ago, I made reference to Uncle Tom's cabin, and I can draw further illustration out of it here. We have in our American literature that famous story, in which slaves were transferred from one master to another. This story presented the brutalities of the system in which husbands were separated from their wives, mothers from their children, and where slave owners were sometimes seen to be brutes in human form. Now the illustration which Paul uses in this chapter takes note of just such a system of slavery and the transfer of a slave from one master to another. But in the case of our illustration in our text, The transfer is from the slavery of sin to the slavery of righteousness. The tyranny of sin gives way to the benevolence of the Lord and His righteousness. Under this illustration, there are certain lessons to be learned. These may be set forth as follows. We were slaves of sin. The death of Christ has emancipated us. The cross involves a change of masters. This change of masters brings with it freedom from the old master and involves obedience to the new master. Now we have seen in some detail in previous studies that truth that is involved in the first three of these lessons, the fact of our slavery to sin, the emancipating power of Christ, and the change of masters that is ours. But the fourth needs some expansion. The change of master includes a total change in our living conditions. Under bondage, A slave did what his master told him or else was punished even to the death. But the moment a slave was sold to a new master, the old master had no more control over him whatsoever. It would even be possible for a slave who had been in terrible fear of a master and in danger of death from him to walk freely and boldly toward him when he had been sold to another master. The presence of his new master would be sufficient to protect him from all harm from the former one. In fact, the slave could be bold even when his new master was not present, since the property rights of the new owner would be sufficient to deter the old master from any menace against him. Now, says the New Testament writer, I use these familiar human terms because of the limitations of your nature. When you were under the first master, you had no duty toward the second master, but When you were bought by the new master, you had no more duty toward the old one. Phillips has paraphrased it thus. I use an everyday illustration because human nature grasps truth more readily that way. In the past, you voluntarily gave your bodies to the service of vice and wickedness for the purpose of becoming wicked. So now give yourselves to the service of righteousness for the purpose of becoming really good. For when you were employed by sin, you owed no duty to righteousness. Yet what sort of a harvest did you reap from those things that today you blush to remember? In the long run, those things mean one thing only, death. But now that you are employed by God, you owe no duty to sin, and you reap the fruit of being made righteous, while at the end of the road there is life forevermore. And then finally... In our text, there is one overall lesson from this paragraph which derives from the consideration of the whole subject. It is the fact that man is not and never has been his own master. Man is confronted by an either or. He is the slave of sin or he is the slave of God. There is no alternative. Now man hates this fact with an unholy hatred. Liberals boast of being free thinkers. They're not fooling anyone except themselves. It should go without saying that we rejoice in the fact that we are not forced to think in lines laid down for us by authorities. We do not have to follow a party line in religion any more than we have to follow a party line in political philosophy. Nevertheless, this does not alter the fact that no man has the freedom to think independently of the truth that is in the revelation of God. God tells us that the unsaved are held captive by Satan according to his will, and that the whole world is lying in the embrace of the evil one. When we come to the word of God, we find that it is the unmistakable teaching, not only of Paul here in this passage, but of all scripture and of our Lord himself personally, that the only human being who has true freedom of any kind is the one who has passed out of death and into life through faith in the redemption that has been provided by God through the death of our Savior. When the Lord was opposed by the leaders of his people, it was an opposition that reached its highest pitch in rebellion against the idea that they were not free. They even claimed that they had never been in bondage to any man, though their history was one long series of enslavements to other peoples, Egypt, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Christ had begun by saying, we read it in John 8, If you continue in my word, you are my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It was then that they made their astounding and preposterous claims to a history of liberty and freedom. They claimed that they had never been in bondage. The Lord answered in terms that laid the groundwork for our text in Romans. Verily, verily, I say unto you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, said Jesus. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. So if the Son make you free, you will be free indeed. Now it's the discovery of these great facts that brings the true believer to his greatest yieldedness for obedience from the heart. We recognize that we were slaves and never had any independence, any liberty or any freedom of our own in spite of all the forms and pretense that we created in our patterns of thinking. But being made free from sin, We became the bond slaves of righteousness and now are alive in that freedom forever. It is this which causes us to turn in glad and joyous thanksgiving to the one whose very name stands for liberation, redemption, salvation, freedom. And when we have accepted the fact of what we were in our first slavery and the fact of what he has done in our purchase and emancipation, that we can walk worthily of the new calling wherewith we are called. It is in this light that we can say, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this lesson to each heart and use it to thy glory. Lord, we pray thee that if there are any listen who have not been born again, that thou will give them restlessness, that they may know no peace till they rest in Christ. But upon thine own who truly believed in thee, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide and a new laying hold upon the liberty that is ours in Christ, and unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now, until our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen.
0: We once lived as slaves of sin and unrighteousness, but Jesus Christ has redeemed us and set us free, and we must reckon ourselves as slaves of righteousness for the glory of His name. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Slaves of Righteousness. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at Alliancenet.org An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Slaves of Righteousness, or simply request message number R6-38. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, The Gospel We Like to Hear. The Bible warns us against following teachers who will tickle our ears with false doctrines that appeal to our fleshly nature. This free booklet clearly sets forth the true biblical gospel and sounds a warning against ear tickling people pleasing distortions of the good news including the false religions of signs and wonders salvation without lordship and the health wealth and prosperity gospel ask for your free copy of the gospel we like to hear when you call or write dr barnhouse and the bible is a radio ministry of the alliance of confessing evangelicals headquartered in philadelphia pennsylvania We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at Alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.